the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into Hour 2 of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. We're going to shift gears a little bit and talk with uh, the author of uh, a new book. It's um, it concerns itself with the murder of U.S. Army soldier Elaine Tyree in 1979 and the subsequent conviction of her husband, Green Beret William Tyree, in one of the most complex criminal cases in U.S. history. The book is called All Along the Watchtower, Murder at Fort Devens, and the author is William Craig, who joins me by phone. Hi, William. Good morning, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, what is it about this case uh, first that makes it the most complex and, and how is it relevant today? Well, what makes it the most complex is the amount of paperwork that has come out of this case in the past 40 years and the government secrets that have been, uh, I guess more or less leaked, um, due to this, uh, and the fact that the probable cause hearing, at, that, which took place in Massachusetts in 1979, uh, came out a couple of years later that the um, courthouse in Air Massachusetts was bugged. And there's just so many uh, inconsistencies that, um, and just blatant omissions of fact that you can't help but wonder and over court, like most cases that are, that are wrongful convictions is always like, Oh, one officer, uh, police department or whatever was out for this guy. And the omissions were there. And there's a few, this has been going on for years upon years. And, um, that's what makes it one of the most complex cases in us history as far as criminal law goes. Um, well, l- let me ask this. Was it tried in civilian court or a military court? That is a, a great question. Um, it should have been tried in military court, and it wasn't. It was uh, tried in civilian court due to the fact that um, Bill Tyree and his wife lived off post and uh, in the town of Air, Massachusetts, which was basically five, five to eight minutes from the main gate of Fort Devens. 
And the only thing that was discovered on the military post was the murder weapon. And the murder weapon uh, was discovered under a pillow in a barracks room two weeks after the murder. Now, you contend that, um, that this, uh, uh, this Green Beret, um, Elaine's husband, William, was wrongly convicted? Correct. Does that mean the way he was convicted was wrong, or he didn't do it? He didn't do it at all. Um, the, it's the only case, this criminal case through the Massachusetts, uh, Supreme Judicial Court is the only case where the witness, I should, uh, the, uh, not the eyewitness to the murder, but, uh, the state's primary witness was protected. And he was also found during, a, uh, the, well, to get, uh, to really bring you up to speed, we got to address the whole um, probable cause hearing, which took place in 1979. The probable cause hearing uh, was conducted by uh, Judge uh, Killam. And Judge Killam, understanding military uh, life and wanted to get as many witnesses as possible in front of him and really dissect this case wholeheartedly. It was the longest probable cause trial in uh, the state of Massachusetts. And he did a great job at it. At the end of his findings, he felt that the um, Air Police Chief William Adamson had uh, committed witness uh, tampering. He felt certain uh, things were coached. The um, testimony by the uh, state's uh, witness just didn't sit well with him to where Judge Killam started asking his own questions. And by the end of this, Judge Killam decides in his uh, judicial findings, he says that William Tyree is only guilty of obstruction of justice after the fact. He felt that uh, there were two other soldiers that should have been prosecuted and he ordered their arrest and chief Adamson refused. He, one of them was already under arrest and that was, uh, private Eric Iris, who was, um, he was a rigger for the, uh, special forces group at Fort Devens. He more or less conducted, uh, he, this parachutes would come in after their jumps, they'd clean them, repack them, things of that nature. And, uh, Iris, had, the biggest thing that didn't sit well with Judge Killam was the fact that Iris only stood about maybe 5'3", five, 5'5". Five, five. He was a short guy. Elaine was 5'11". Um, uh, she had stab wounds in her head. Her throat had been slit. Um, just a horrendous murder. And he couldn't, and she had obviously, because she was in the Army, had, you know, uh, self-defense training and so forth. And she, he couldn't see this little guy committing this crime. The other thing was that Bill Tyree knew exactly who, uh, murdered his wife. And because he was conducting his own investigation, uh, more or less covertly 
and he started talking. He and he, the murderer, actually confessed to Bill. It was completely all covered up by the U.S. Army. Um, and at the end of the probable cause hearing, Judge Killam says, "I want Earl Michael Peters arrested for murder in the first degree, obstruction of justice before and after the fact. I want Eric Harris arrested for murder in the first degree, and Bill was supposed to walk." and just face the nominal charges of not cooperating fully with the investigation. Come to find out, there was a secret uh, grand jury indictment that had been handed down eight days prior to the uh, ending of the probable cause hearing. And they never, nobody ever knew about it until Judge Killen came forth and said, oh, we're going to let Tyree go. Tyree never leaves the courthouse in Air Mass. He's obviously been held without bail ever since uh, he was arrested the night of February 13th. And next thing you know, he's off to face murder charges. And it's just been so many... You contend... (laughs) William, you contend that, um, that the military wanted to bury um oh shoot i'm gonna i'm getting the names confused uh william tyree because of things he knew about military operations that they wanted kept secret they just didn't want they were using the murder of his wife as an opportunity to bury him i I mean that's the impression i get well, his wife had writ had was a it's and this has been documented by several affidavits over the course of the years. His wife was uh, keeping two sets of diaries at the time. One diary was her day to day, you know, um, fed the baby, went to the store type stuff. Uh, the other diary was dealing with things she had overheard and over and seen on post at the time. Um, this dealt with a lot of uh, criminal activity. And Earl Michael Peters was mentioned in those diaries. The uh, Air Police Department and the, state, and the uh, state police of Massachusetts, at the, from the time the murder occurred, for, I want to say, I believe it was eight weeks after, had keys to that apartment, never once inventoried anything they took out of there, I uh, never once even went to the courthouse and got a uh, search warrant. Never got permission to search. Uh, this was proven years after Bill's um, conviction, and they were ordered to return everything. None of the stuff was ever returned. It's been over 10 years now. Um, and it just seems that they, con- they confiscated everything they possibly could so that this guy's life could be ruined, they could get the diaries and keep their covert operations quiet the whole time. How much control uh, did the military have over what could be searched and and what could be used in this trial? The military really didn't have any investigative authority at first. when the murder was discovered, they called the off-post liaison, and that person came down to uh, inform them who this person 
who the deceased was and so forth. It well, quickly William. spread around the post that there had been a murder occurred, and this was the address. The minute two CID agents heard this, they weren't called for by the uh, Chief Adamson of the RPD. They weren't called for by the Massachusetts State Police who were on scene. They took it upon themselves to go down there and more or less put themselves into the case. Well, you mentioned, um, William, for example, that the murder weapon was found on base. Could the military have um, uh, what overruled a subpoena, for example, for the search for that weapon? Um, in fact, <laughs> uh, through the course of investigating this story, which has taken place, I started this over 10 years ago, I got in touch with the, uh, for, the former Fort Devens commander at the time, Colonel Riches. And uh, Colonel Riches testified at the probable cause hearing, and he thought that, you know, these guys got a fair shake. And the uh, more I started talking to him, he something didn't quite sit right with him either. So he asked for the uh, copies of the paperwork I had and so forth and uh, put him in touch with some other people as well. And next thing you know, Colonel Riches realizes that the uh, CID agents purging themselves during testimony. And uh, he was looking at his notes. He still had his original notes from this case that were sitting in his storage facility, uh, his in his uh, garage, rather, out in Texas. And he started going through it, and he realized, wait a minute, they called, they called me about uh, 6 o'clock at night. And the, um, he said he was going off post. The CID agent, Brzezinski, uh, informed him that, oh, Bill Tyree is helping us. He, he said he... he this this is this guy has the weapon. It's somewhere probably in his room. We're gonna go uh, grab it. He goes, okay. He goes, if you feel that, you know, there's enough probable cause here. Sure, I'll, I'll sign the uh, search warrant. He goes, I should be back on post about eleven. So he gave verbal authorization. CID grabbed uh, before they even had verbal authorization to go and find this. You know, search the room. They were already on premise and they had already discovered it and it was uh, Colonel Richards just couldn't believe it so he uh, filed an affidavit on Bill's behalf over 30 years later and put it through the proper channels the state of Massachusetts doesn't want to touch it they said that's a military matter even though Fort Devens has shrunk in size since 1979 he still has uh, according to military law, he still has uh, jurisdiction of what took place on those grounds during his uh, service time there. So he put it through uh, the CID department. They said, no, that's a state matter. It's not our issue. We didn't convict him. He's the only, and meanwhile, Bill Tyree is the only person, and I, I could be wrong, but I've researched this. William, I have Six to put, Sunday, but, okay. I, I, I have to put a comma here because I have to go to break. Can you stick around so we can talk some more? Sure. All right, we'll be right Everybody's back. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom Say, objection. Hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just, um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. (laughs) 
Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation about a new book called All Along the Watchtower, Murder at Fort Devens. That uh, case was an actual case back in 1979. And uh, the author is uh, William Craig, who joins me by phone. William, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Uh, no problem. So um, yeah, the, what I was getting up. at was the, the biggest revelation in this case is this is the only known case where an active duty uh, army soldier was convicted in a civilian court of murder in the first degree, sentenced to life in prison, and receives a uh, general discharge under honorable conditions. There is no other case that has ever given a, an active duty soldier uh, honorable discharge when they've been convicted of murder. And for people just tuning in, of course, we're talking about uh, William Tyree, uh, the husband of U.S. Army soldier Elaine Tyree, who was killed in 1979. And and you say that that Bill Tyree was wrongly convicted. Um, what was the the motive alleged? Uh, by the prosecution in this case? The prosecution's motive alleged was that uh, Bill Tyree, uh, what what was happening in his life in 1978, uh, early 79, was his wife, Elaine, had just given birth to a baby girl, and they were getting ready to, she was going to be leaving the Army. And Bill decides, and Elaine decided as well, that, well, since we have a child, we should get insurance. Typical move for new parents. So they started increasing the insurance policies. And they said that Bill offered this uh, gentleman, uh, fellow soldier, Eric Iris, $5,000 to kill his wife. Because she got her insurance bumped up first, um, or or for the insurance money, is that right? That's what they were claiming was it was uh, due to the insurance money. That's why he killed his wife. Um, Bill wasn't in debt. He, uh, like I said, he. In fact, it was proven the probable cause. He didn't even try to collect any of the insurance money. The insurance, uh, the insurance adjusters were con- were trying to contact him. He never returned their calls. He never made a single attempt to collect any of the insurance money on this case. Was he arrested fairly quickly after uh, after she was killed? Because very often the husband is the the primary suspect. He was, but the the way the murder took place was he drove up, dropped her. They had been eating lunch on post. Every day that week, in the in the week prior, uh, on in January '79, he pulls up. He he just she's told because she's mustering out of the army. You got to have all your uh, extra uniforms turned in. So Bill stops, gets her some lunch, drops her off at the house, heads back to post. Says, "Call me when uh, you're ready to be picked up, and you have the uniforms, and I'll pick you up." 
Bill goes back to, he was working military intel at the time. Uh, he's there, he, he, looking at the time, he goes, gee, she's taking a little more, much more uh, time than she really needed to. He calls up and Chief Adamson answered the phone and told him the uh, incident occurred at his house and uh, we need to speak to you. And at that point, he leaves. Uh, from that point on till it was approximately two weeks, um, Bill was investigated, went through his story. He was even placed under watch by uh, the military. And under watch is more or less he's assigned to someone to keep an eye on him, make sure, which is unusual because he didn't show any signs of suicide, being suicidal. He didn't show... Um, he was never, uh, never once was he looked upon as the, a possible murder suspect. Uh, temp, they decide they go to Barry, uh, laying down in uh, her home state of Maryland, and she was not a Green Beret soldier. She was a regular army uh, assigned to the quartermasters, and tenth group went down to uh, perform the military honors to bury her. Uh, to this day, she's the only non-10th uh, group personnel that they've, the 10th uh, Special Forces group has ever buried. Uh, everything was, you know, hindsight being 2020, uh, it appears that they were trying to keep an eye on Bill the entire time. Uh, he flips out at the funeral, um, extremely upset, uh, drinking heavily, and Bill was not a drinker, and he uh, flips out at the funeral, and they uh, turn around, they grab him, and they don't send him to a psychiatric ward in Maryland, they send him to Walter Reed Army Hospital. He's there for about four or five days, they clear him. They said, yeah, he's, you know, just extreme, uh, the case of nerves, more or less, you know, being upset at his wife's passing. And he's back on post. And he built a side. One day he bumps into Earl Michael Peters, and Peters tells him, who was a friend of his, and Peters tells him, hey, you know, I was thinking about uh, your wife's murder and everything, and I think it was this guy, Aris. Now, Aris had been... Uh, had lied to CID prior to Elaine's murder and said that Bill had sold him some uh, a, a rope that was U.S. government property. He signed an affidavit to that effect. Uh, Bill was looking at a uh, you know court martial for it for stolen uh, military property, and Iris for realizing that he had done it for somebody else. He turns around, he signs another paper, says, no, nah, I, was, I was lying. He goes, it wasn't Bill. He goes, this guy was threatening me. And I just had a drug problem that was well-documented. Um, military knew about it. didn't affect his job performance, so they kind of let it slide. And the charges against Bill were dropped. And they remanded it down to, I think it was an Article 15, and uh, he was in the process of appealing that when his wife was murdered and stuff. So it doesn't make sense that 
this guy would hire a guy who's lied about him in the past to murder his wife, number one. Um, well, Michael Peters, when he brought up Iris, he knew right then and there, Bill said that Peters was the one who uh, killed his wife. Peters was about 6'2", um, kind of came across as a country bumpkin type, but uh, very knowledgeable in uh, hunting and gutting animals and so forth. And then there was the other piece of evidence that came out in probable cause where Peters had a um, shotgun that he had bought, and he stored it under the couch in Bill and Elaine's apartment. The day of the murder, the couch had been in the struggle and everything had been tipped over. The uh, weapon was never recovered. Peters says, oh, I uh, checked that into the arms room a couple of days prior to the murder. The arms room, uh, the guy that was in charge of the arms room was a good friend of Peters, and they mysteriously found a receipt uh, two weeks later, or three weeks later, that had uh, the trash had never been emptied, I guess. And they said, oh, here's a receipt for the... the meanwhile, there was two different... Um, serial numbers listed and it had been whited out on the book which was an automatic gig during inspection and these are special forces guys these guys don't make mistakes so there was a issue of the shotgun that uh, came up there was the issue of size between Elaine and Iris as opposed to Elaine and Peters um, Peters it came out in 1985, I believe, that uh, the um, landlord, when he had been called to let the police into the ARPD, that as he was driving up to the location, he saw Peters walking through the parking lot carrying a Remington shotgun box. And uh, this this was never told to the police, or if it was, it was buried. Um, there was also another witness, uh, Vias Williams, he lived in a building next to them, that saw a person running along the backside of the building, and this was the middle of winter, uh, and he, he told the CID that, oh yeah, the, you know, he was, the guy was uh, probably 6'2", you know, uh, decent build to him, but yet he was never called to um, testify. William, how would you characterize uh, this book? Is it a complete factual uh, recounting of this story and your research, or is it a, a historic novel? Oh, it's an it's a factual account. Okay, through research, the um, obviously. At first, you, you hear about covert operations, CIA drug smuggling, um, things like that. You're not inclined to, more, you know, you don't want to join the tinfoil hat brigade and say, okay, yeah, this is what's <laughs> going on. Right. But, but, but the thing is that, that I find interesting about your book, William, is that every turn seems to indicate conspiracies right very and, much so and it's, you've it's, it's even interesting that's <laughs> wanting to put um you know uh bill um 
Tyree away so that, you know, they can, they can silence him about black ops things that he knows about through his intelligence work and his, his service in the Green Beret. But then right. they have to know that there are other people who did it. What ultimately ended up happening with Bill Tyree and what happened with these, uh, these other suspects? Well, um, Bill Tyree ultimately is still uh, serving uh, life, you know, prison term, life in prison in Massachusetts he, for the murder of his wife. And he's still alive and still claiming um, innocence. Correct. Uh, Eric Aris is also still in prison in Massachusetts serving a life sentence. For this. And for this, correct. And I've uh, spoken to Aris, and he has no recollection whatsoever. Admittedly, he told me, he goes, I was in, a, in and out of a blackout the entire time. He goes, I had a, a horrible drug habit, and... This has been ju- has been told to me by others as well prior to uh, my speaking to him. He doesn't recall anything. He said the only reason uh, he even uh, wrote an affidavit years after his conviction and said that Bill had never came to him, never told him. The, during CID, uh, CID's questioning of ours the night of February 13th, there's 18 minutes of missing tape. He even told him, I, he had a cast he had, on his leg at the time uh, due to a knee injury. There was no way this guy was running. He may have driven the getaway car. He may have dropped off the killer. That's, a, that's possible, but there is no way that this guy committed the murder. Was there a, um, you said something about uh, there, there was this theory that, uh, Bill Tyree had paid these guys to murder his wife, uh, ostensibly for the insurance money. Um, was there proof that these guys had been paid, if not by Bill, by someone? No, it, there was no proof whatsoever that any money had ever changed hands. Bill, the only thing that was, a, I believe that $5,000 came into play was, Bill had said to Iris, and Iris was known as a guy who would do anything for a, a quick buck. And Bill says, uh, after talking to Peters in the morning at the uh, mess hall, he tells, he decides, he goes, okay, he goes, I can, he goes, Peters will use Iris to take the fall. So he goes, if I get the murder weapon, we're good. So he devised a plan to meet Iris. He goes, yeah. You know, at lunch he tells him, you know, you kind of did me a favor. He goes, I'll give you five grand if you give me that murder weapon so I can dispose of it. Iris says, not a problem. Immediately, Bill calls another friend of his who was uh, on a post there and says, you need to, he goes, I, I can't do it right this many. He goes, but you need to call Chief Adamson and tell him I will have the murder weapon and to get in touch with me. Adamson his friend does it. Adamson call contacts Bill. They make a plan. Okay, you're going to be off post at uh, five o'clock tonight when the I, when you receive the uh, weapon, flash your uh, headlights or turn your wipers on. I forget which it was, and uh, we'll come in and make the arrest. Okay, great. 
Well, uh, Iris was under restrictive duty at the time. So he was forced to uh, remain on post. He said, I couldn't do it. So Bill goes to the, uh, the barracks and he, he talks to Iris. Iris says, yeah, I'll have the weapon. He goes, I need a little more time. So he goes up to Peter's room and says, uh, Peter's goes, oh, did you get him? He goes, no. He goes, uh, says he doesn't have it. Peter's goes, yeah, I saw it coming out of his jacket that, uh, when he got back here at, at, from the uh, rigger shack. He goes, it's got to be in his room. Bill runs downstairs because Men his friend Menzi was supposed to pick him up. And Peters comes walking out, pulls a gun on him that Bill had bought for protection for Elaine. And it was never found, but Peters had it on him, pulls a gun on Bill and says, listen, I didn't want to have to kill your wife, but I had no choice. I needed those diaries. My name was in there. This, uh, along with a lot of other stuff. I'm and glad you brought the diaries back up, William, because I was just I was just wondering what happened to them and what the likelihood was that that's what she was killed for. Because she was keeping a log of all kinds of. Uh, oh yeah, there activities. was there was information about um, uh, stolen target folders from MID uh, that she sorry. Um, the captain burning in his room uh, in, the, in the BOQ. Uh, there was two trailers of equipment that went, I'm talking tractor trailers of military equipment that went missing. Uh, it was a free-for-all <laughs> in the late 70s, early 80s up at Devon's at the time. And the diaries, of course, anybody can make any accusations, but 1996, while uh, Colonel Edwin Wilson and a... Uh, former Chief Warrant Officer McCoy were doing investigating the Cotolo affidavit that came out. They got in touch with the, per, they had been in touch with Bill Tyree and stuff, and then they got in touch with a, a lady by the name of Dee Fernand, and who was going through uh, her own issues with uh, records missing and so forth, and uh, she was trying to prove who her father was, which was a, a guy by the name of Colonel Albert Carone, and he seemed to, he lived a very interesting life. Uh, this gentleman was a New York uh, police officer. He was uh, very good friends with the Genovese and the Colombo families and the Gambino family. And he also was a CIA asset as well. And um, Bill McCoy had kept both uh, parties from really getting to even knowing who they were. And eventually, once during the course of his investigation, McCoy realized that they're both telling the same story and neither one of them know who the other one is. He puts them in touch with each other. And uh, Miss Fernand comes out and says that, yeah, I saw these diaries. My father had them. And there was a uh, paper that came out that said that they were delivered um, the the police have found them, I guess, the diaries, and uh, they made them to Colonel Cotolo's desk, and from Cotolo's desk, it, they get dropped in the mail and went to a drop box, and this guy, Colonel Carone, picked them up and dropped them off at uh, CIA headquarters in Langley. And he, I guess, Carone had uh, 
towards uh, he was getting ready to die, and he felt uh, guilty about it because he had used he had had dealings with this uh, kid Tyree, who he were always called Sandy because of the color of his hair, and from that point on that proves that those diaries were in existence and Bill even tried <clears throat> to uh, sue the U.S. government for uh, false imprisonment because everything he's ever claimed has come out over the years and those uh, still powers that be I guess that don't want to see this guy have his freedom they want to keep their government secrets and it's a uh, it's a, it'll remain a mystery as to what else Bill might know that he doesn't realize. Well, this is a fascinating uh, case and a fascinating story. What what put it on your radar, William? In, uh, I want to say, early 2000, 2001, um, I was contracted by Acadia Publishing to do a pictorial history on Fort Evans. And uh, got in touch with the army, and I, you know, requested uh, pictures of of Fort Devens and stuff. And uh, they put me in touch with Devens RFTA at the time. And I went in there, and this uh, colonel wanted to speak to me. That was in charge of what remains of Fort Devens today. And I went in there, and we we're talking. And he says, uh, "Oh, he goes, I, I see you were stationed here, and I've, I've read your." Your, your personnel file and everything. I said, yes, sir. And we're talking. He goes, well, what exactly is this about the book? And I says, well, it's going to do with, uh, you know, more or less a feel-good veteran type thing of people that either they worked on post or uh, they were stationed here or grew up here, you know, and uh, different facilities that were in place at different hours and so forth. And uh, I said, that's primarily what I'm looking for. And he goes, that's it. I said, well, what else would there be? And he says, because uh, growing up, I grew up in Massachusetts. At the time of the murder, I was seven years old. I don't even have a recollection of seeing it in the news or anything. And he goes, there's not going to be any mention of uh, Bill Tyree? And I says, uh, excuse me, uh, what do you... He goes, well, there was a murder case in 1979 here. He goes, they dealt with a special forces soldier. He goes, it's been an issue ongoing ever since. He goes, and I want to make sure that, uh, I says, oh, so I interrupted him. I says, so, Colonel, what you're telling me is, is that I have your assistance as long as the Army and its reputation stays intact. And he says, yes. I said, for this book, absolutely, sir. And you're shook his hand, and from that point on, everything was open to me, as long as I did not mention that instance. Well, and uh, after the book was done, <laughs> then, it was an open, then it was open for debate. But. William, I've got, to, um, I've got to take another break here. Can you stick around so we can close sure. up properly? All right, my guest is William Craig, author of All Along the Watchtower, Murder at Fort Devons. We're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break, and we have some messages as well.
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque riverway. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wanky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Cloth or disposable? Paint or wallpaper? Yellow or green? Babies come with lots of decisions. Crib or bassinet? Rocker or glider? So when it comes to protection against diseases, go with the safest, most effective choice. Vaccination. To protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases like measles, meningitis, and whooping cough. That's why nearly all parents choose it. Stroller or carriage, basketball or soccer. So get all the recommended vaccinations for your baby by age two. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. Justin or Justine. Immunizations help give you the power to protect your baby. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Why are we stopping? We're going to be late for the show. Mom, Dad, we got to get gas. Not here, you're not. This place is charging an arm and a leg. Look, these days, price swings of 30 or 40 cents per gallon aren't unusual. But when a gas station charges a price way above the price at similar stations, that could be gas gouging. Michigan gas stations sell the correct quality and quantity of gas most of the time. But when a station does try to illegally take advantage of drivers, my office is here to stop them. Stop Attorney General and we got a concert to get to! I hope she doesn't sit next to us. Narc. This is Attorney General Dana Nessel. 
If you have information about potential gas gouging, call my office or go online at michigan.gov slash AG. Put those away. We're at a gas station. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We, uh, As we roll into this third segment of... Uh, this hour, we're going to wrap things up with the author of a new book called All Along the Watchtower, uh, Murder at Fort Devens by William Craig. And uh, William is my guest this hour talking about this uh, very complex murder case from 1979. William, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Oh, thank you. Um, William, I, I wanted to make sure and give uh, you a chance to share with listeners uh where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Um, and and this this book is so fascinating, and we've just barely scratched the surface. So um, let's let's. Do you have a website you'd like to? Oh uh, yes, it's on um, author William the letter J Craig dot com. And, and there you can see what I've writ- what else I've written, and um, still posting links to uh, different uh, things concerning the Tyree case. And 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 what's next for you? I'm currently working on a second book on the Tyree case, which is um, shows the justification of where the um, that the black ops he claimed to have been involved with and the proof of where it comes from. Well, that sounds like it's going to be just as interesting as this one. William uh, Craig is my guest. The book is uh, All Along the Watchtower, Murder at Fort Devens. William, thank you so much for spending this time with me and the listeners this morning, and keep up the good work. Thank you for having me. Have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye. Still more of the Tom Sumner Program, straight ahead. Another five-minute mystery. Our story takes place in Green's Gap, a small town in the Southern Cavern District. Green's Gap Hospital, Dr. Melville speaking. Doctor, doctor, there's been an accident out at Echo Cavern. Accident? What kind of accident? Two men were exploring and they got lost last night. One's unconscious. You better come quick before he's dead. I hope you know how to get out to Echo Cavern, Lem. Well, with the job of being town constable and ambulance driver, I reckon I know all there is to know about these parts. Ever been in the cavern, Lem? Once, Doc Melville, when I was a boy. Nearly got my hide tanned off by my paw. Echo Cavern's a mite treacherous place. You mean it's easy to get lost in it? Not only that, Doc. It's that cavern gas carbine. Mmm, something. You mean carbon dioxide? Yeah, that's it. All of a sudden, you run into some of that stuff, and before you know it, Bean, you're out. Still, people seem to be going uh, exploring in there. More fools to be. I wouldn't go into them caverns, at least till I was not without a dog. A dog? What for? Well, if a dog keels over, then you know the gas is collecting. 
I'm afraid, Mr. Gaddy, your friend is dead. Oh, poor Patsy. It wasn't from the gas, was it, Doc? That's what it looks like to me. Why'd you go into that cavern anyway? Patsy asked me to. We'd never seen a cave before. How far did you go in? Well, it didn't seem very far, but all of a sudden we lost our way. Where was that? Well, how do I know whereabouts it was if we was lost? We tried to trace our way back, but it was no use. Patsy started to get scared. It's kind of funny to see a big guy like that get scared. Yeah, he is rather big, isn't he? Yeah, six foot four. The mob used to call us Mutt and Jeff. And then what happened? Well, I was a little scared myself, but we stuck together. You know, walking in the dark with only my flash from the car. All of a sudden, Pat's keeled over. From the gas? Yeah, that's what I figured. His head hit on a rock, and I guess that just about finished him off. I suppose you reckon yourself pretty lucky, mister. Yeah, sure. I figure it's because I'm only five foot three that I got out of there alive. Gas must have been just about a foot over my head. Yeah? And what do you think about that, Doc Melville? I think you better arrest Mr. Gotti for the murder of his friend Patsy. What was the flaw in Gaddy's story? Do you know it? In a moment, we'll hear from Lem and Dr. Melville. And now, let's see whether you're as observant as Lem and the doctor. Hey, copper, let me put my hands down. They're tired. When you're in Green Gap's jail, not before. I don't get it. It was a good story. I still can't figure out how you found out. Lem tells me they used to take dogs in the cavern because the gas is heavier than air. It collects on the floor. If you really meant gas, you would have keeled over first, before your pal Patsy. Well, what do you know? I tell you, nowadays in this murder racket, you need a college education. Another five-minute mystery. This five-minute mystery featured the voices of Rhonda Groves Young, Randy Zimmerman, Sean Cantwell, and yours truly, Tom Sumner. Stay tuned to the Tom Sumner Program for future mini-mysteries. this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. I have only comparatively recently emerged from the United States Army, so that I am now, of course, in the radioactive reserve. <laughs> and the usual jokes about the Army aside, one of the many fine things one has to admit is the way that the Army has carried the American democratic ideal to its logical conclusion in the sense that not only do they prohibit discrimination on the grounds of race, creed, and color, but also on the grounds of ability. (laughs) Be that as it may, some of you may recall the publicity a few years ago attendant upon the Army's search for an official Army song to be the counterpart of the Navy's Anchors Away and the Air Force's Up in the Air Junior Birdman and so on. (laughs) I I was in basic training at the time and I recall our platoon sergeant who was an unfrocked Marine. (laughs) Actually, the change of service had come as quite a blow to him because it meant 
but he had to memorize a new serial number which took up most of his time. <laughs> At any rate, I recall this sergeant's informing me and my roommates of, uh, <laughs> of this rather deplorable fact that the army didn't have any official, excuse me, didn't have no official song. <laughs> and uh, suggested, suggested that we work on this in our copious free time. <laughs> well, I submitted the following song, which is called It Makes a Fellow Proud to Be a Soldier, which I think demonstrates the proper spirit, you'll agree. However, the fact that it did not win the contest, I can ascribe only to blatant favoritism on the part of the judges. of every man in our platoon must swell with pride for the nation's youth the cream of which is marching at his side for the fascinating rules and regulations that we share and the quaint and curious costumes that we're called upon to wear now al joined up to do his part defending you and me he wants to fight and bleed and kill and die for liberty. With the hell of war, he's come to grips, policing up the filter tips. It makes a fella proud to be a soldier. When Pete was only in the seventh grade, he stabbed a cop. He's real RA material, and he was glad to swap his switchblade and his old zip gun for a bayonet and a new M1. It makes a fella proud to be a soldier. After Johnny got through basic training, he was a soldier through and through when he was done. Its effects were so well rooted that the next day he saluted a good humor man, an usher, and a nun. <laughs> now, Fred's an intellectual, brings a book to every meal. He likes the deep philosophers, like Norman Vincent Peale. <laughs> He thinks the army's just the thing because he finds it broadening. It makes a fella proud to be a soldier. Now Ed flunked out of second grade and never finished school. He doesn't know a shelter half from an entrenching tool, but he's going to be a big success. He heads his class at OCS. It makes a fella proud to be a soldier. Our old mess sergeant's taste buds have been shot off in the war. But his savory collations add to our esprit de corps. To think of all the marvelous ways they're using plastics nowadays. It makes a fella proud to be a soldier. Our lieutenant is the up-and-coming type. Played with soldiers as a boy, you just can bet. It is written in the stars. He will get his captain's bars, but he hasn't got enough box tops yet. <laughs> Our captain has a handicap to cope with, sad to tell. He's from Georgia, and he doesn't speak the language very well. He used to be, so rumor has, the dean of men at Alcatraz. It makes a fella proud to be what as a kid I vowed to be. What luck to be allowed to be a soldier. Was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Zanjic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.